Hey, I am Mustafa Sharif. Thank you so much for listening to Urbanistica podcast. I'm looking forward to this episode. going to be super interesting. We're going to talk about biking culture and smart cities. I have the pleasure to welcome Chris to Urbanistica podcast. Hey, and welcome, Chris. Oh, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. How are you? Doing very well. Yes, thank you. Uh, lots changing around us in the world and, and some bad stuff and some, some good stuff, but... Uh, um, Obviously, uh, we're we're uh, here in Delft, uh, seeing a, a light at the end of the tunnel uh, yeah. to this uh, Corona uh, situation. How is it to work from home? Is it easy? Did you manage? Yeah, I, I, prior to starting work at the Dutch Cycling Embassy, I had worked from home for four or five years, so I was kind of used to the concept. But at that time, the kids were obviously going to school and. Uh, <laughs> In this situation, we've got a, a an 11 and a 13 year old um, schooling from home, and and that makes it quite difficult. They've got you know uh, checking in with their teachers on a regular basis, have structured classes, but um, only that only takes them so far through the day, and and they do need uh, a little bit of supervision and assistance, and so that sometimes pulls us away from working on. But so far, so good, and and yeah, one the youngest started back uh, two days a week this week, and uh, we're looking forward to the oldest uh, who starts up again on June first. Great, good news. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And are you going back to the office as well soon? Yeah, the public transportation system uh, goes back to regular schedule uh, June first, and uh, our office is located about seventy kilometers away in Utrecht, so it's about a forty-five minute train ride from here. Uh, the concern is capacity, so it's only going to be running at about 40% capacity. They haven't quite figured out how they're going to manage that, whether it'll be an online reservation system. or. Uh, and once we learn that, then I'll be able to commit to going into the office at least one or two days a week uh, to start. And then uh, hopefully as, as capacity increases and things ramp up, I'll be back in, back in full swing again. Yes, that sounds very promising. And again, thank you so much for giving your time for the podcast. Not a problem. Have, always happy to talk about uh, building better cities and, and how the cycling can, can help enable that. Yes. Well, Chris, you're going to be the storyteller of this episode. So far, there are 5,500 listening to you and, and from 71 countries. And so greetings from Stockholm to you. And please tell us about yourself and what are you passionate about? Yeah, where to start? I mean, uh, so uh, I currently work for the Dutch Cycling Embassy. We're a, uh, a public-private partnership started by the national government here in the Netherlands, uh, located in Utrecht. I myself live with my family in Delft, uh, but I am not Dutch. Uh, <laughs> I am a Canadian uh, who grew up in the Toronto area, uh, spent the past 10 or 12 years in Vancouver, and uh, we packed up and moved to the Netherlands uh, about a year ago, uh, for this kind of dream job situation that I'm I'm currently working in. And it grew out of the activism work that my partner, Melissa, and I were doing uh, kind of on our evenings and weekends uh, in, in trying to influence the cycling culture in Vancouver. Um, it brought us to the Netherlands to write a, a series of blog posts that um, kind of snowballed into a book uh, that was published by Island Press at the end of 2018. It's called Building the Cycling City. The Dutch Blueprint for Urban Vitality, uh, and that kind of inadvertently transformed Melissa and I into international ambassadors for the Netherlands as, as a couple of Canadians, which was quite strange, but we were lucky enough to travel the world with this book and, and teach cities uh, what's so great about the cycling culture here in the Netherlands, 
how it can help them become better places to to live, work, and uh, play, and uh, and give them examples of, of other cities, perhaps more car-dominated cities, uh, that have recently started along the, their journey towards becoming cycling cities, um, like our hometown of Vancouver, like New York City, like Austin, Texas, um, that received inspiration and guidance from the Dutch um, and are implementing some of the lessons and the, the concepts that we talk about in the, in, in the book. Yeah, what a great story, and I would love that we dig deep in each chapter of it. So, what made you be a biking activist? Can we call can we call you like this? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I tend to bristle at that word activist. I mean, at the time, uh, Melissa and I are not trained engineers, transport planners, or anything of the like. Uh, we were just people that were cycling around Vancouver at the time. The mayor was implementing really positive changes to the streets, great cycle lanes, traffic calmed, uh, bikeways. And uh, we were experiencing our own um, challenges and our own uh, joys uh, and trying to communicate that over social media. And that evolved into writing blog, a series of blog posts and, uh, and uh, creating a series of films. Uh, but it was all about looking at uh, the city from the user perspective rather than the the kind of top-down planner engineer perspective, and uh, how how these uh, systems and, and concepts can be implemented to improve people's quality of life. Yes, and today I would love that you, you inspire us with your magic about how do we change the mindset. So we got this into this biking culture. So we can we can start from from Netherlands. Who who is biking in Netherlands? Only adults, or can even see kids. Yeah, it's 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 not hyperbole to say that virtually everyone cycles in the Netherlands, and it's I think one of the things that people notice when they first visit here is it's not just uh, you know the fit, the brave, the the young, and the middle aged. It is the elderly. People cycle here into their 80s and 90s. Uh, people with physical disabilities cycle. People with uh, children cycle. The children themselves are on a bike at four or five years. Uh, of age, and um, there really is uh, the rich cycle, the, the poor cycle. I mean, it's it's really an egalitarian mode of transport that everybody has access to, and and something like 84% of the country uh, cycles at least once a week. So it's really um, kind of been uh, a culture that's been created over decades of investment in their streets, and and a very uh, careful selection of priorities, shall we say, to uh, to not uh, put car traffic at the top of the transportation hierarchy, but actually at the bottom. And a lot of uh, cities and, and regions and countries talk about that concept, but very few actually implement it and, and make those difficult decisions. And the Netherlands was luckily one of those countries that did uh, about 50 years ago when the, the rest of the world was headed in a very different direction. So, so you mean this culture was created by the infrastructure, the physical inf infrastructure? Yeah, I mean, it never really went away, to be fair, I think. And, and places around the world had a cycling culture up until the Second World War. Uh, if you look at, at photos of most American, Canadian, Australian, New Zealand uh, uh, cities, most European cities, people were cycling in mass numbers uh, until, you know, around the, the late 1950s, early 1960s, when the engineers and the economists um, kind of hijacked the, the transportation planning profession and uh, made 
the case that the economic prosperity and the modernization of cities relied solely on the uh, the free access and reign of the motor vehicle. Um, and as a result, uh, people abandoned their bikes and, and hopped into their cars because that's the way their streets and their cities were being designed. Uh, and they lost generations to to the automobile. Um, there, there's no doubt that the Dutch uh, cycling numbers dropped off a little bit, but they recovered uh, or they, they declined less rapidly than other places around the world uh, and bounced back much quickly. So they didn't lose those generations of, of people cycling. And it was passed down from father to daughter, from, uh, you know, from grandparent to grandchild. Uh, and, and as a result, cycling here is not seen as a lifestyle or a political statement or uh, anything. It's just, uh, you know, as we like to call it, walking with wheels. It's uh, the bikes here are, are, you know, really rusty and old and, and uh, under maintained and, and uh, they're not uh, uh, painted or considered part of a uh, person's personality. Uh, they just ride these plain black utilitarian bicycles to wherever they're going and use the bike as a, a tool to kind of uh, walk around their city with uh, with a, a slightly faster pace and uh, a more efficient uh, machine that helps them along the way. Yeah, so so basically cycling is a part of the daily life. It's not something special. Oh, today I'm going to bike. No, exactly. But it's, uh, it's a choice that people make as a result of... Um, you know, the way their streets and cities are designed, this is not, uh, you know, the Dutch don't care about the environment or, or are more, you know, morally superior to the rest of the world. Um, this is, these are choices that the engineers, planners, politicians made um, to make the bicycle the first choice and the easiest choice um, and to make driving, you know, a little bit of a, a difficult choice because it's expensive and you have to go uh, kind of these circuitous routes around the city uh, whereas you can, you can, the the bicycle is made the more direct and convenient and comfortable mode of transport. Yeah, and do people bike only, let's say, from A to B, like from home to their work, or they use it in other for other activities as well? Yeah, I, I think um, the the trip to work is probably um, one that not a great number of Dutch people make because they do um, statistically work a significant distance from their office. Um, so in that case, you know, a lot of Dutch people will drive or take public transportation, but it is really the everyday trips that you see people out on bikes for. So they're going to the market in the city center. They're going to their hairdressers or doctor's office, uh, picking their kids up from school, going to a friend's house, going to a restaurant or cafe. Uh, virtually everything is done on a bike here. And, and as a result, the, the, the bikes are kind of kitted out with these extra racks and uh, crates and, and pannier bags. Uh, to haul uh, modest amounts of, of uh, freight. Uh, so a couple bags of groceries, it'll get you through the next couple days. Uh, you know, a basket, a bouquet of flowers, whatever you happen to uh, to need for for the, the day. And um, it's, uh, yeah, it's really something that, to see the way that the bicycle is ingrained in their everyday life. And, and they don't think anything about maybe going to the hardware store and getting, you know, some... <laughs> some long pieces of wood and then cycling with uh, them under their arm. I mean, you re we're continually blown away by the things we see people carrying by bike here. They so so this, this is something I'm super interested in. So do people carry furniture from Ikea to <laughs> Yeah, bike? maybe not <laughs> entire pieces of furniture. <laughs> there are uh, larger freight bicycles, cargo bikes, um, that you could uh, carry a couple of flat packs on. 
but the, I mean, if anything, it's it's a pragmatic decision. Uh, you can easily go to IKEA and get your furniture delivered. Bring home a couple of photo frames, or you know, plant potted plants, or uh, whatever's whatever's practical. Uh, yeah. But having said that, you know, it, we have seen people moving entire sofas uh, on uh, <laughs> by, by, by bicycle, and uh, but they're certainly the exception and not the the norm. Yes, yes, and also part of this culture started the Dutch Cycling Embassy. Tell me more about the, the story. How did it start, and and why? Yeah, so the I think uh, the Dutch Cycling Embassy was formed in two thousand and nine, eleven. Sorry. So it's just coming up on its nine-year anniversary. Uh, and it was basically formed by the national government here who were getting all kinds of requests from international governments, uh, embassies, and consulates around the world that were looking for expertise and advice from the Netherlands on cycling. And they were kind of tired of uh, handling those requests uh, themselves. So they set up this separate organization that could um, answer the inquiries, uh, deal with incoming delegations who wanted to come to the Netherlands to study the infrastructure, the culture, the the, the techniques here, um, and uh, and also to export this uh, this knowledge and expertise, these decades of uh, uh, street experiments, trial and error, uh, best practice that that's been developed uh, by designing around the bicycle for so long, uh, and so we have uh, we get part of our funding from the national government. Uh, the rest is. Uh, financed by our individual members. So we have about 70 organizations right now that are uh, kind of uh, paid participants of the Dutch Cycling Embassy. They pay an annual fee to call themselves a member. Yeah. Uh, and they are anything from private consultants, transport engineer, planners, um, academic institutions. So we have a number of universities that do a lot of research around cycling, um, municipal governments that obviously uh, are day-to-day -day in the trenches, uh, building the, the the infrastructure, the intersections, and, and want to just help other cities uh, with their own challenges and opportunities. Can different uh, partners, I mean, are you, are you open to international partnership? Yeah, so we, um, that's how we, you know, get get out there and, and get into these markets and, and, and is partnering usually with municipal governments, sometimes it's state or federal governments, sometimes it's embassy, sometimes it's uh, uh, private companies that uh, just want to engage with our experts and, and learn what is best practice for the challenges that they're experiencing in their context and in their city. So if they're having trouble with intersection design or the uh, the bike tr public transport combination or uh, any of these specific concepts, we can put together a a team of experts uh, drawing from both public and private organizations and, and then come to that city or, or town and uh, hold what we call a think bike workshop where we're looking at the uh, specific corridors and intersections and challenges that that city is facing uh, and we can shine a light on uh, maybe a fresh perspective uh, on, on how the Dutch would approach that particular challenge and through that process we're imparting all of this uh, this institutional knowledge that exists because, like I said, you know the Dutch have figured out through trial and error over decades what's the best placement for a traffic light. You know what height should it be at? Uh, what's the phasing that should be at? What's does the curb cut detail look like? All these little things that cities are now struggling with as they start to implement cycling infrastructure. They don't need to go through all these mistakes and, and make them themselves. The, the Dutch have figured out best practice for a lot of the stuff and. Uh, we are more than willing to come along and, and help them out. Yeah, so basically you just come and say, okay, this is it. This is this is what you can do. 
Yeah, instead but of, it's instead of going through like let's say 30 or 20 years of try and fail. Exactly, but it's not always uh, as simple as copying and pasting. It's more giving them guidance uh, and then adapting the solution for their specific context because um, there are places in the world that are very different from the Netherlands, whether it's just climate, geography, land use, all these different factors. Um, they have to adopt the solution. And, and as I said earlier, you know, it's not necessarily just cycling uh, that's the, the tool that's going to get the best result. Maybe it's sometimes it's combining cycling with public transport. Maybe it's electric bikes. Maybe it's um, other solutions that the Dutch have implemented um, in, in varying contexts because every Dutch city is different and, and there isn't a one-size-fits-all solution. Yes. And if, if I might ask you, what are the key elements that make biking culture so so successful in the Netherlands. We talked a bit about the physical urban planning. Yeah, it's uh, it's really kind of the top-down uh, approach. So they take network design very, very seriously. And uh, I think if, if anyone is comes to us, that's one of the first topics we start is uh, you need to plan your network um, and not just start building bike lanes on random streets. Uh, so they take a holistic approach and make sure that um, cycling is made uh, direct, it's made attractive, it's made that it connects all of the possible destinations um, and, uh, and, and departure points for uh, a given city. So it, it checks the boxes for the trip to school, for the trip to work, for the trip to the shops and so on and so forth, because uh, people on bikes will take Distance, uh, trips of diff different distance, different lengths, different speeds, different types, uh, and uh, all those need to be taken into consideration when it comes to the design of the network. Um, at, at the same time, the, the car network uh, is just as important as the bicycle network, and this is another thing that we tend to emphasize is um, there, almost every Dutch city has a very specific car traffic circulation plan where the, uh, there's a hierarchy of streets uh, 30 kilometer hour streets, 50 kilometer hour streets, and all of the 30 kilometer hour streets push the traffic to the outskirts of the city uh, very quickly and and uh, directly, uh, so that you don't have cars cutting through your city at, at high speeds. Uh, and that creates these conditions where cycling can thrive on virtually every street and not just the ones that are designated bikeways. Um, so it's through designing these mobility systems, the bike network, the cycle network, and the public transport network um, as three uh, separate but connected uh, forms of mobility uh, that I think the Dutch have really achieved some phenomenal success and the mode share uh, uh, definitely proved that. I think one in four trips in the country are made by bicycle uh, and 25% uh, uh, is uh, foot or public transport and then about half of the trips here are made by, by car and, and that's really unparalleled anywhere else uh, in the world. Wow, that's Fantastic to hear. Here in Scandinavia, we have uh, Copenhagen as a great city for biking. So do, do you have any statistic that shows which is the, the best country, uh, not country, city when it comes to biking? I mean, top three. Yeah, I think if you ask the Danes, they'll say Denmark. And if you ask the Dutch, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> they say... Uh, but I, I mean, one point we always make is that uh, Copenhagen is one city in a... Uh, a fairly car-dominated country, uh, and the Netherlands is one country in the world that has built cycling cities virtually everywhere. Uh, the One of the stats that we pulled out for the book we wrote was that there are 202 uh, villages, cities, and towns in the Netherlands where the bicycle mode share exceeds the car mode share. Uh, 
uh, for trips under seven and a half kilometers. So it's um, it's tiny villages of a thousand or a hundred people. It's you know mid-sized cities of sixty, seventy thousand, and then it's obviously in the capitals uh, and the metro metropolitan areas like Rotterdam and Amsterdam. So they've made cycling work uh, at, at, in a variety of contexts and scales and uh, and cultures, and and I think that's worth celebrating because, as you said, it's not just a matter of one size fits all, copy paste what we did here. It, it's taking all of those. Uh, toolbox, uh, a toolbox of solutions, and and uh, and then applying them where where it works for your city. Yeah, I I would love to hear your reflection about because in some countries, biking is for poor people, cars for the rich people. So, what do you think about this mindset? It's uh, it's unfortunate, and it's uh, it's not something that's going to change uh, very quickly. Uh, the car industry is such that they <laughs> have the resources to spend billions, if not trillions, on selling this um, this lifestyle of, of unlimited mobility and freedom. And, and uh, I think people who uh, end up buying into that lifestyle find out very quickly that it's not uh, all it's cracked up to be in terms of the, the additional costs, the danger, the, um, the stress involved, and, and ultimately the uh, the impact that car has on the city around it. And uh, I think we're just beginning to understand in terms of air pollution, noise pollution, um, the, the impact on our social connection in our neighborhoods, um, the, the, all these externalities that the, the car brings. Um, so our challenge is, is, you know, cycling activists or advocates um, is to make the case of, that the, the bicycle is um, a lifestyle that's worth pursuing that it doesn't it's not an instrument of uh of poverty or or uh, something that demonstrates that you are of lesser means but it it's something uh, perhaps that you are uh proud to ride that uh that you're uh consciously choosing the bicycle uh because you want the freedom the unlimited mobility uh without the additional stress and cost and and uh, uh, that come around the automobile. So uh, it's not necessarily maybe making it about cars versus bikes, uh, because again, there's all this uh, these other modes of transport that we should be encouraging. Um, but at, at, the same, at the same time, like I said, our challenge is now um, making people choose cycling um, as a perhaps a lifestyle choice. Uh, but ultimately, it comes down to how their streets look, because they're not going to cycle with six lanes of traffic. Um, they're not going to cycle if it's May, if there's no place to park their bike at the end of their trip. Um, cities and, and governments need to take the lead and make that cycling uh, choice uh, as practical and as attractive as possible. And uh, I think uh, a lot of people who maybe grew up on a bicycle and remember the freedom that it bought them at, 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 at such a young age and uh, can rediscover that, uh, that feeling if the conditions are made uh, suitable in their city. Yeah. So basically what you tell is the responsibility government should take the responsibility they have to yeah uh, they they are the ones that uh, you know have have built uh, uh, their cities around the automobile and and uh, they are the ones that are going to undo that damage that's not to say that ad advocates and activists can't play a role um, we would certainly encourage uh, you know anyone who's passionate about uh, making their city a better place to connect with like-minded people in their city organizations that are pushing for change um, and to support the politicians that are, are trying to make those changes because 
as you can probably attest, it doesn't come without controversy and outrage and uh, backlash from the, the car lobby who see this as a zero-sum game that uh, when the car, uh, when space is being taken away from the car, that they're ultimately the ones losing. Uh, but that's another story we need to tell is, is at the end of the day, for every short trip that's being made by foot or bicycle, it's one less car in front of the people that want and need to drive. Uh, and the fact that the Netherlands is also not just a great place to cycle, but also a great place to drive. Um, another study we pulled out for the book was that uh, Waze, the, the driving app, named the Netherlands the best place, the most satisfying place in the world to drive a car for three consecutive years, uh, 2015, 16 and 17. Uh, specifically referencing its smooth traffic conditions uh, because, again, the, the car is a choice that people have, um, but when they have other options, uh, they're perhaps more likely to choose them for shorter trips, and that frees up precious space, uh, road space for people who want to drive and people who need to drive. Tell me more about the book, Building the Cycling City. What, what stories are you bringing up? Yeah, so the, the original intention when we uh, approached Island Press was to tell the story of five cities in the Netherlands that had changed direction uh, and, and gone from fairly car-dominated places to, to true cycling cities. And they were um, Amsterdam, Utrecht, Groningen, Eindhoven, and Rotterdam. And, and Rotterdam, I think, is a particularly compelling case study because um, it's, it was uh, completely leveled by the, the German bombs during the Second World War and uh, rebuilt after that uh, uh, around the car. So it has these broad, wide thoroughfares, these tall buildings, this um, separated land use patterns that separate commerce from um, residential, from, from, um, from uh, business. And uh, so it, it feels very much like a, uh, an American city. It, at, at the time, they referred to it as the Chicago on the Mass River. Uh, the planners. And uh, like most Dutch cities in the 70s, it, it faced multiple crises, uh, the two being, the big ones being uh, the OPEC oil crisis, where uh, fuel was being rationed and uh, they had a series of car-free Sundays uh, that, uh, that opened up the streets to people. Uh, and they had a road safety crisis that was killing uh, thousands of people and hundreds of children each and every year. And as a result of those two crises, um, most cities across the Netherlands changed their direction and, and started building more space for walking, cycling, and public transport. Um, so the intention was to tell those stories uh, of how those historical events happened. Uh, but Island Press came back to us and challenged us, okay, that's fine, but you have to make it relevant to uh, 21st century cities and, and show how those lessons, those examples, those concepts are being applied uh, in other places. And so uh, we pursued storylines uh, in, like I said, our hometown of Vancouver, uh, but unlikely places like Austin, Texas, uh, Atlanta, Georgia, um, where that have learned ideas from the Dutch. Uh, some of them have even engaged with the Dutch Cycling Embassy uh, on their walking and cycling master plans, uh, but are starting to build out uh, these networks. And they're in very early stages uh, but there's uh, examples, uh, and, and I think push back a bit on this idea that the Netherlands is its own uh, unique ecosystem, and no one can learn anything from it, and nobody, <laughs> nobody can uh, can uh, copy what they've done. Because, uh, but we we um, in the book outline ten cities uh, that 
uh, are doing exactly that. And they're, like I said, they're earlier in their journey, but they're well on their way now to uh, to building out pretty uh, robust uh, walking and cycling networks. Yeah, super interesting book. Is it available in different languages or just in English? Unfortunately not, yeah. We, um, we work with Island Press to try and get some foreign translations, but unfortunately uh, it involves um, a, a, another publisher, like a third-party publisher, stepping up and, and uh, fronting the, or li licensing the translation rights and, and publishing and then distributing the book in their own country. And we've, we've had some initial interest uh, from various countries, but none have actually come through. So if anyone listening uh, wants to uh, translate and distri distribute this book in their own language, uh, I would certainly invite them to get in touch. Amazing. Chris, Smart City. So tell me, how do you define a smart city? Yeah, it's, uh, I think, a hot topic these days. And, and uh, I'm going to be a bit uh, counterintuitive, I think, and, and, uh, and not talk about technology, because I think too, too often uh, the, the focus is on how technology can make our cities better. And I don't want to dismiss it outright, because there are certainly technologies that can. But I, I fear and I worry that um, in the name of progress, in the name of the next shiny object, the Hyperloop, the whatever uh, autonomous, connected, self-driving, flying vehicle, um, that we are ultimately going to lose sight of what's important. And that's, um, you know, giving places in our cities for children to roam freely, uh, for neighbors to interact with each other, for people to uh, walk into the city center and, and to experience their city at a human scale. Uh, spend money at a local business, uh, sit and have a drink or a meal on on the terrace. Uh, these are all uh, things that Dutch people enjoy uh, on a daily basis, but it's all a result of keeping the car and the technology at arm's length and and uh, resisting this this urge to uh, continually modernize and and improve ourselves. And I actually read an article recently from Silicon Valley that referred to the retro bicycle coming back as a result of Corona crisis. <laughs> uh, and it, I think that ultimately really sums up the, the attitude of Silicon Valley and other, uh, you know, entrepreneurs and innovators and, and, and fortunately some politicians that the bicycle is this 125 year old technology that, uh, people have moved past and forgotten about and aren't interested in revisiting. Uh, the same could be safe said for the tram as well, you know, uh, and, yeah. Uh, we know what light rail can accomplish uh, nowadays in the 21st century, but these are being forgotten for the pursuit of, uh, you know, self-driving shuttles and buses and ride hailing and, and all these new fangled things that are ultimately, I think, uh, going to make our city more congested, more um, exclusive, less accessible to people of uh, less economic means, uh, less equitable, honestly, uh, and... Uh, so a smart city is uh, maybe something that that resists the uh, the the common uh, um, practice that that the this idea that that cars equal economic vitality um, and, and look at other ways at bringing um, more of a human touch to their cities and and um, I could speak at length about the the children aspect to it and and. One of the, the great tweets on this topic was by my friend and colleague, Lior Steinberg, um, who said that a smart city is not one uh, or is one where a child can roam freely, uh, independently, one that has the, the facilities to enable that. And 
this has one, been one of the amazing things about moving to Delft is our 11 and 13 year old children are suddenly out there on their own, cycling to school, cycling to the shops, cycling to friends' houses, cycling to the swimming pool. Uh, and they enjoy this new autonomy and, and freedom and independence that I think every children should have, but we've unfortunately designed it out of our cities uh, as a result of, uh, of uh, trying to make them smart, if you will. So, <laughs> Yeah, um, you, you know what, Chris, this is a completely different answer from what I get in the previous 65 episode about smart cities. So it's very interesting. And thank you so much for sharing this point of view about what is a smart city. My pleasure. I don't want to be one of those kind of uh, those people talking about the, the, the good old days. But uh, really, I think our cities would do ourselves uh, a lot of uh, favors if we, we look back and revisited some of those older technologies uh, rather than looking ahead and, and uh, at the next shiny object that promises to... Uh, transform our streets or whatever yeah what do you think about uh, because recently i guess you also in netherlands have this uh, electrical scooters or what do you call them yeah they they're uh, electric kick scooters they call them yes yeah. yes do you think it's something promising and we keep going to take it it's interesting they're actually uh illegal here in the netherlands so they've been uh the national oh. government not knowing how to regulate them and not wanting to further congest the cycle paths has just put a outright ban on their sale and usage. Um, but uh, you know, having said that, uh, I think again the Netherlands may be a bit of a uh, a different uh, situation. There are other places, more car-dominated contexts like Los Angeles, like Berlin, that are embracing these scooters. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, if they're replacing car trips. With something a bit more, uh, you know, a bit slower, a bit more scale appropriate. That doesn't. Um, uh, if somebody's going to choose this instead of a Uber or Lyft or uh, a taxi or or their own car, then then that's certainly a win. Uh, I think the challenge has really been on providing um, parking facilities for these scooters, uh, because cities are quite hesitant to reallocate car parking space away from uh, private cars on the street. Uh, the the scooters themselves are cluttering up the footpaths and the and the public spaces and and that's the the challenge. So I, I think some cities, uh, Washington D.C. I saw recently, have tried to create these kind of parklet uh, on street uh, facilities where they remove one car parking space per hundred meters or whatever it is to allow for scooter and dockless bike uh, parking. Uh, and that's certainly one situation that, uh, or one scenario that where there's a solution. But um, I, I'm not, uh, you know, uh, dogmatic when it comes to the bicycle. If people want to ride scooters, if people want to ride whatever mode of transport um, that that uh, works for them, um, but ultimately that choice needs to be made easier by by the uh, the city officials. Yes. Interesting, because here in Stockholm, we are actually doing almost the same that we are taking off one car parking and give it to the scooters. And also we are providing with the charging station. But still, you can see them like all around the city, you know, in a, in a kind of messy way, like uh, just thrown down. So, yeah, it's interesting if this is going to be the future of uh, mobility or short distance mobility. Well, Chris. I'm so happy to talk to you. I'm so inspired. So again, thank you so much for giving your time and sharing your experience and knowledge with us. No, it was my pleasure. I always have to chat. 
And now, so how would you like to summarize what we talked about in three takeaway messages to people listening to you and to Urbanistica podcast? Yeah, so this, uh, I think, comes back to the book that I'm currently writing uh, with my partner, Melissa. Uh, we're writing a follow-up to Building the Cycling City, um, and it's loosely going to be titled something around uh, the low-car city. So I think um, we should see cycling as uh, not as an ends to a, uh, but as a mean, a tool to build uh, the end goal, which is um, uh, cities for uh, social connection, for uh, this this uh, um, place where children can can grow up, where the elderly can move around freely, where people can hear uh, and experience their city with all of their senses, um, and and so uh, cycling obviously here in the Netherlands uh, works because it's uh, the way the culture is orientated, and and but uh, it shouldn't be seen as as the end goal. And uh, if public transport works best for your city, if kick scooters work for your city. Um, the, you shouldn't lose sight on on what you're trying to achieve, and, and that's not just more people cycling. It's it's fewer cars on your street, uh, and, and more human, uh, more socially connected streets. So, um, the bicycle is not <laughs> the be all and end all, but uh, but uh, it should be seen as a tool that your city can implement uh, really rapid and and radical change. That that comes to the current situation that we find ourselves in with the the Corona crisis. Um, and I think you're seeing cities around the world adapting their streets uh, very quickly and, and, and at an unprecedented level um, because uh, they're seeing that the only way they can uh, keep their streets moving is, is by getting people out of their cars uh, with the, the, the diminished public transport capacity. Uh, they're going to have to fill that gap with uh, uh, active transportation. And so maybe like the oil crisis was in the 1970s for the Netherlands, this can be a, a tipping point for the entire world uh, as cities start re-envisioning their streets and, and seeing them for, as more than just places to to move automobiles. Um, so that would be the, the kind of optimistic message that I would, I would leave your listeners with. And, and hopefully we can now make our cities uh, better for people rather than... Uh, for the past 50 years, we've been making them pretty great for cars. Yes, of course. Thank you so much for the powerful takeaway messages. My pleasure. So three hashtags for the episode. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I would say, you know, hashtag, hashtag low car city, uh, hashtag uh, cycling city. I mean, the two are, are interconnected. And, and the other one I would use, and this is a topic we wrote about in, in chapter five of the book, is hashtag demand more and, and that city officials are... Uh, headed the right direction, but uh, the citizens, the activists, the the organizations that want to see change in their city need to demand more from their elected officials. Yes. Thank you so much again for giving your time for to Urban Sticker Podcast. I'm happy oh. to chat with you. Thanks for having me, Mustafa. And thank you so much for listening to Urban Sticker Podcast. Please follow Instagram and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Do you have any great story that make our city smarter? Please contact me. I am Mustafa Sharif. Have a good life.